Hello and welcome to Disseminate, uh, the podcast bringing you overviews of the latest computer science research. I'm your host, Jack Wardby. We're recording today from ACM Sigmod Pods in Philadelphia. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Alex Isenko, who will be talking about his paper, Where is my training bottleneck? Hidden trade-offs in deep learning pre-processing pipelines. Alex is a PhD student at the Technical University of Munich. He is interested in ML and optimizations and generally making stuff faster. Um, Alex, thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you. Happy, happy to be here. Brilliant. Um, let's, let's dive straight in. Can you first of all explain to our listeners what is a deep learning pipeline? Yeah, so deep learning pipeline in general always starts off, we have some data set stored somewhere, then we have some pre-processing steps, um, typically any kind of transformation that you can imagine, like decoding images, um, resizing them, even embedding text and all of those kind of things. So basically making that the data fits the model that we want to train, right? And finally, we have the training process that ingests that mo- that set data, right? Mm-hmm. And then runs with that and does forward propagation, back propagation, um, applies applies the back applies the gradients to the model, and then we start everything from a new and do that multiple times. So we iterate over the entire data set multiple so-called epochs, um, and then hopefully sometime we achieve the desired accuracy that we finally conclu- can conclude and say, well, the model is trained and it does the task whichever we wanted to make it to make it work. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So in this pipeline, how does how does data pre-processing and provisioning become become a bottleneck? Yeah, so this is actually a, a very good question because this is kind of the, the, the line of thinking that got us started in doing this kind of research in general because like three years ago when we initially thought about it, well, okay, sure, there's actually a lot of research being done already in the entire ML community about how to make the training go faster because this is the major, major bottleneck. Like it, it's, it was the bottleneck and it still is the bottleneck for specific applications <clears throat> But there's like, uh, what is it, like 100 papers published each day in the machine learning community. <laughs> Keeping up with that is very, very hard and like creating a space for you. And then we noticed then actually there are many, many papers that are already doing this training optimization speed, like using better hardware or using better software to optimize the training, right? Um, and we noticed, well, what, if this part of this entire pipeline is getting that much, that much faster and that so many people are invested in it, right? What about the pre-processing, which actually has to provide the data to feed these models, which run that much faster? And luckily, luckily for us, unluckily for all of the other community, we kind of noticed that, and all the other people, of course, also noticed that this is actually a problem. And that sometimes, um, if you are like not a professional in terms of designing such a pipeline, it's very, very easy to create a pre-processing pipeline that will not saturate your GPU, which sometimes you pay for with real money and at AWS or Google Cloud resources, right? So it's kind of wasting money in that sense. <laughs> and the, the funny thing about that is it's also actually not very good for cloud providers as well, because um, the interesting trade-off in there is the following. If we could show you that actually you could get a worse hardware and still get the same results, the this specific VM which you which you would have bought would be free and the cloud providers could actually sell that to another person because you are the person who would use this lower end hardware. So it's yeah. like a win-win. The yeah. client uses less money to get the same results and the cloud providers get an additional better working VM to provision to other people because they have real like in reality they have quite a problem to give people those low-end VMs because nobody wants them because they don't even know that they could be essentially the same, like have the same usability as the higher-end VMs. So, yeah, this is actually why we got into pre-processing in general um, and saw, well, this is actually a problem, right, for many people. 
And the way how it can become a bottleneck, um, like the gist of the paper in general already is, is that storage consumption is really, really important when estimating the throughput. And because it affects many, many different things, it affects the, the, the bandwidth of the network, which however you're connected to your node and wherever your storage lies, be the S3 bucket or, um, or your S- local SSD or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing is, of course, Typically, we work always with throughput with a metric of it's called throughput in samples per second, right? And samples per second is not really megabytes per second, right? Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing about the preprocessing is um, is that the same data, like the same kind of image, can sometimes be blown up and then also again reduced in storage consumption. And therefore, this throughput in samples per second may differ a lot. Because some, for example, decoding JPEGs increases the storage consumption by a factor of six to eight, right? Mm-hmm. So the CPU actually has to process that much more data, which is very, very inefficient in that particular, like in that particular step, and therefore the source consum- uh, the throughput can actually be reduced by a lot. So, for example, very naive, but decoding and saving the the images raw to disk, right, is not really a good thing. But kind of everybody knows that already, right? Yeah. And what we have shown is that these particular trade-offs are also there with other non-trivial steps. Like for example, resizing and normalization and all of those things. Every all of these transformations have been have have a trade-off in terms of throughput versus storage consumption. And depending on the data set, depending on the hardware you're running, depending on the on the amount of uh, DRAM you have, all of these can change and affect your preprocessing pipeline negatively or positively. Right. And this is the way the, these bottlenecks actually show up, just because every step has such a trade-off. Right. And that leads naturally into the next question: is that you, in your paper you analyze several different pipelines from several different domains. Can you go into a little bit more detail about the specific domains you looked at and the pipelines that that, that were there? Yeah, of course. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so the pipelines we looked at were mainly like we had seven representative pipelines. We tried to to basically scrape the the, the papers from the last ten years and see mm-hmm. which ones actually were kind of prominent, which ones were used a lot, right? So to get actually something representative going on. And we focused we focused on fo- focused on four different domains, namely um, computer vision, uh, natural language processing. Um, Automatic speech recognition, so and this is like voice, right? And um, one kind of esoteric one um, that's called NILM, so non-intrusive load monitoring. It's called. It's we use that because people from our chair actually are kind of uh, kind of yeah doing that in their research as well. So okay. they kind of pushed me to it. Well, yeah, let's just take a look at that as well. And yeah. it's kind of an interesting topic where um, you measure electrical data and try to classify appliances from that. So we also uncovered that, and this is kind of the, like the signal data. Uh, <laughs> that we use for that. Yeah. Okay, cool. So what were the key uh, insights from your analysis? Yeah, so actually the key insights, there were so many, we definitely won't have enough time. <laughs> okay, <laughs> give this, me the best ones. In this talk. Yeah, Yeah. so um, one of the main things, to be honest, I would really like to focus on, if there would be one thing that everybody should take away from here, um, it should be the following, is that fully offline pre-processing is not necessarily the best strategy. So to to expand that, we have to take a little bit step uh, <laughs> step before and to explain what fully offline means, right? Um, fully offline, what I mean by that is that you pre-process the entire data set before before you start the training. And this is kind of the, the status quo and the default way to do things because it's kind of easy and it makes sense, right? Because I already talked about that we actually have epochs, right? So we look at a data set multiple times. So, and if now I would say, tell you, well, you have, but you have to pre-process the entire data set again and again and again, every epoch. It's obvious that you should cache or somehow save this kind of computations, right? And what we have shown, unfortunately, <laughs> is that this is 
not the best strategy sometimes, especially for image problems, like especially for image pipelines. We have shown that in all of our, like we tested uh, three image pipelines, oh sorry, like one image pipeline with three different data sets. It didn't even matter if the images were from ImageNet or some high resolution data set. In all, in all situations, we could actually find a strategy which, were, which was better than fully offline pre-processing. And that had, again, to do with the storage consumption and then, of course, the throughput. So we actually had a throughput increase in uh, times three, so going from like 600 samples per second to 1,800 samples per second yeah. without changing the, the CPU hardware, just by changing this materialization strategy, which I talked about. What are the other insights we'll... Yeah, so into. other insights, um, I think one that I, I'm really eager to talk about as well <laughs> is, um, is about compression, actually, because... Um, People who already know about these, uh, this issue about storage consumption, throughput, and whatever, compression is kind of the next logical step, right? Because compression actually focuses on exactly this particular issue. It focuses on you have CPU compute power left in some sense, right? And you have to compress and decompress data, and you save storage consumption for that. So it's kind of exactly in that particular trade-off, and therefore we also analyze that. And funnily enough, there were two quite interesting insights um, as to, for example, the first one was that um, actually compression really, really works sometimes, like a lot. It can save storage consumption and uh, increase the throughput at the same time. And this is kind of a kind of an interesting trade-off because typically, as I said, it's a trade-off, right? You mm. trade storage consumption for CPU compute or for throughput, right? And we actually noticed that for some particular strategies, it's actually beneficial to do both. You can actually get both out of it. So you have like a win-win situation <laughs> just because the the effect the storage consumption is having, right? The minimum, so like the smaller the storage consumption gets, the higher the effect on the throughput gets you. And therefore, you can actually while still having to decompress the entire data every single time and every single read in the epoch, you still get a better throughput while keeping a small storage consumption. This is kind of a kind of absurd finding to me. It was I was like yeah. really not thinking that something like this would be, would gonna is gonna happen, but it actually was. It's right? Fascinating insight. Yeah, it's a great and result. If, do we have time for one more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the one other thing which is quite cool about compression in general was that we tested uh, we we used. Um, a data set which was provided to calibrate cameras actually it was okay. kind of a kind of a smallish data set but we we found it interesting because it was provided both in pngs and jpeg so it was, and we found it kind of quite interesting because it was also quite a high resolution and we just said well yeah let's just run it in the same pipeline we already have how about well what kind of differences does a bigger resolution make right yeah. but what we actually found out is the difference between jpegs and pngs is actually quite quite big okay. because uh, it was a very funny thing <clears throat> The PNG dataset in general, um, I think it, if I'm, if I'm to not totally incorrect, it was about 60 gigabytes. And the JPEG, the same images, right? Same images yeah. took about, I think it was like 2 gigabytes or something. Like ballpark, basically, right? It's like times 30, right? Mm. So obviously, you should always keep the JPEGs. Why would you ever use the PNGs? And the funny thing about that is because the pipeline already of course, decodes the images as well, right? So because we have to have it's in some kind of RGB matrix, right? We, want, we have to decode them anyways. So JPEG decoding is anyway slow, and this is something which you don't get with PNGs, right? So that's kind of like a first trade-off, but it still didn't make really the a big difference in throughput because it's still well, yeah, but use storage consumption, right? Remember, storage big storage consumption is kind of bad, mm. so it kind of kind of uh, was was basically equal in terms of that. But the interesting thing about compression, we tried gzip and zlib compression. This is kind of like the very default ways of um, doing compression basically mm. on on any kind of data, and was just already implemented in TensorFlow. And when applied after the decoding step, we found out that the PNG dataset, so the decoded, the decoded in quotes, PNGs, 
were actually compressed four times better than the decoded JPEGs. And um, the reason for that is actually because even when you decode the JPEGs and get them into an RGB matrix, they still have the artifacts which they had in the encoding before, oh, right? Okay. And the default gzip and zlib compression simply didn't work that well on those 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 images with artifacts. And by that, we actually got an increase both in throughput and in storage consumption. Oh, sorry, increase in throughput and a decrease in storage consumption for this PNG data set. And it was a factor of four. So the PNGs at the end in this particular strategy was with, which performed the best, which we would always recommend people to use, actually took about 280 megabytes, while the JPEG data set for the exactly same strategy, right, for this best strategy that we had to offer, actually took 1.1 gigabyte. So it was like four times bigger, which is kind of absolutely uh, also non-trivial to think about that keeping a data set as JPEGs at the end will actually get you a higher storage consumption yeah. for that particular task. Kind of a totally funny, like, interesting <laughs> insight. I never also, it was just like by accident that we found that out. So it was pretty cool too. Yeah, like, well, often the to, best yeah. things are discovered yeah. by accident, right? Exactly. So, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, for my next question, in the paper you also introduced Presto, mm -hmm. uh, the open source profiling library. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So um, Presto is basically, it's actually a very, very simple um, simple program, I would say. We're using the, the so-called TFData API. It's like kind of the, oh, sorry, TFData.dataset API. It's kind of the, the default way to create a pre-processing pipeline right now in TensorFlow. And what we are basically doing is... <clears throat> Is accessing um, all of these steps that you create in, in this data set. You can do a map, right? And a map means you just simply apply a certain transformation function over a collection of elements, which is typically the data set, right? And what we are doing is um, creating a split point between every step. And the split point serializes and deserializes the data set. So basically does this materialization, which I'm talking about. And then we do a short profiling um, and then say, well, yeah, of all of, these, uh, of all of these particular strategies, this is the one which performs the best. And you can optimize it automatically with a cost function if you want to. It's very, very easy to see, uh, to, to try out, to be honest. And if I'm going to be really honest, it's actually very easy to implement by yourself in your particular um, framework, be it PyTorch, be it even TensorFlow if you don't want to use our code, just take a look. It's very easy to understand, in my opinion at least, right? And the entire optimization is just basically creating insights about your particular pipeline and to, to make it to actually make it visible for you what kind of trade-offs you're looking at because sometimes it's really not easy to understand how how certain steps affect the, your hardware, right? How much memory it actually takes, what, how much bigger are the images when you decode them from JPEG into, into an RGB matrix. Like, I didn't know before. Yeah. And those kind of things, it's like actually very, very important we found out to know for a fact to actually know what, for example, what kind of machine to schedule, right? If I know that my data set, which takes up two gigabytes, but decoded actually 80, maybe I should provision a machine that has 80 gigabytes of RAM, right? And these kinds of things, this is what we want you guys, like everybody, listener, hopefully, <laughs> to, to, to get with you, like um, that you actually know that there are some trade-offs, some hidden trade-offs, right? The title <laughs> on the paper. There are actually some hidden trade-offs, um, in everybody's pipeline probably and you should definitely profile it because there are many many opportunities to keep using the same hardware without paying uh, without paying additional money like to to reschedule it or whatever because sometimes just picking the better strategy is the better way to speed it up right fascinating so how does how does this compare to other tools in the space yeah so um what we what we focused really mostly on about was to just generate actually these insights to actually see what's what's what are like the common 
common uh, caveats, right? And uh, like common pitfalls, I would say, that some people do, and but, which we do, which we did already as well, right? While doing this entire research, so we focus mostly on that. So, and this kind of analysis was not really done before. Um, I would hopefully can say that, but there are actually a lot of really, there's actually a lot of related work in that particular domain as well. Like many many people who are publishing papers typically focus on automatic decision finding, and there's actually a lot. So, for example, one particular I would like to mention is um, is Plumber. It's actually also published, um, I think, November last year. Actually, had a communication with that uh, with a particular researcher as well. It was quite cool. Um, and they also use the, the TF data framework. And what they do is actually also quite interesting. They also try to to focus on throughput optimizations and those kind of trade-offs and kind of automatically doing all of those things. But the key thing what what they are focusing on about is um, rewriting the execution graph. Because you can imagine, um, in our case, let's only talk about the pre-processing. It's actually just a line of transformations stacked one after each other, right? And what they focus on is to use this transform, use this, um, <clears throat> this the generated graph structure and say, well, but couldn't we just simply rearrange things automatically, kind of in a semi-automatic way, to make it better or faster? And this is what they do, right? And this is kind of a kind of a cool thing. But for the exact citation, please feel free to look at the paper. At my paper, we are actually citing many, many of those tools, and uh, feel free to look at them because many of them are very, very good. And, yeah, we can also yeah. link it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, yeah. It would yeah. be really cool. And maybe other general um, things to note, like of related work, um, would be the FFCV library right now. I think I saw like a Twitter post in February that it's coming out as kind of a Kind of a data lo- a new data loader specialized for computer vision purposes, um, and they kind of kind of funny for me. It was kind of funny for me to to note to note that they actually include many of our insights. But of course, the paper wasn't out back then yet, so they kind of kind of get uh, get to that on their own, of course, right? Um, kind of cool for me to read that some of the things that we found out were actually problems, and they also already included them in their in their library without ever reading our paper <laughs> because they came to the same conclusion by themselves. So hopefully we did good research. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. So it was pretty cool for me to read about them. But I'm still looking, still waiting for the paper. I think it's not not out yet. I think they they published the library itself, and they already have a pretty cool website going on. But I, I didn't read the paper yet. But maybe I'm 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 still like, yeah. Maybe I haven't haven't checked it out. But yeah, okay. fascinating. Who will? Who will find these results useful? Who will find the tool useful? Yeah, so <clears throat> to be honest, I hope everybody who ever has something to do with pre-processing pipelines in general, um, that's kind of the, the, the basic answer, but the more high-level answer is, um, I think, because this is also one of the things that um, some people who I talked about in, uh, at the conference here They've kind of shown me the big, the bigger, a little bit of a bigger picture of what we actually did right here. And for example, they told me that this this kind of trade of throughput versus storage consumption is very, very generic. It's like not something particularly. Um, it's not a particular problem of pre-processing strategies in general. It's just, it's just about everywhere where you process data, right? Be it some SQL queries, be it some be it in a streaming fashion, whatever, right? Um, all of those people are kind of affected by this by this trade-off. And um, for example, migration, right? You want to migrate uh, a GPU model from to a, like from one GPU to another GPU. When do you migrate it? When it takes the least amount of storage, because that's gonna that's the way where it's gonna be the fastest, right? And this is actually exactly the same thing, like exactly the same trade-off, where you kind of wait and try to see, well, at what point in time is the data as small as possible so I can actually do something with it. Mm. Like be, make I either make it faster, like reading it faster from storage or migrating it from one uh, one VRAM to another VRAM, right? So this is kind of the, the general um, 
take, I would say. So yeah. people just should be aware of this storage consumption throughput trade-off, and but this kind of affects really everybody who's working in computer science, I yeah. would even say. This so, actually yeah. leads quite nicely into this next question I've got, which is, what what's the most interesting, unexpected or challenging lesson that you have learned while working on this topic? Oh, that's hard to answer, to be honest. Um, most challenging... Hmm. I think actually actually having the rigor of of performing all of these experiments to be honest it's like mm. it's very easy to say well yeah now I kind of kind of already found out some things right is hopefully enough to write a paper and then the reviewers get back to you and then say well yeah but actually haven't you thought about that thing and that thing and I was oh no that's so out of scope how can I like for example I got a I got an, a reviewer who told me to think about but what about multi tenancy like how can you how can you share preprocessing pipelines? And I was like, yeah, sure, that's a very good idea. That's a very good idea for the next paper. Yeah. But really, not, <laughs> like it's, we, I already like we have what what is it like thirteen pages? Yeah. And for thirteen pages, we're already working like for two ish years on that. We have so much. We 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 already like kicked out I think three chap three entire chapters which did fit the fit the paper already. So it was really really hard to actually follow up on that research. So I think. To be honest, this was the most challenging thing. Yeah. Just having the rigor to actually perform all of these experiments and focus on the, the ma- these main insights and try to make it useful to everybody because this is kind of a kind of a pet peeve of mine that mm, there's a lot of research out there that does very very good work, of course, but it's very hard to to make it accessible to to like I would say everyday people and by everyday people I mean like people who are working in that particular area as well. So I think and we kind of really really hope that with these kind of Easy to to un- hopefully easy to understand insights. We'll make like a very first step that everybody could just hopefully not do the the like not have these same problems that we had. So so yeah, fantastic. And one last question from me: uh, What do you have planned for future research? Yeah, for future actually more tenancy. <clears throat> so actually, we we thought about that a lot, and we kind of so unfortunately, multitenancy is a very very hard problem. So I'm. I'm basically like everybody can try this topic by by themselves. It's very very hard to solve um, for specific for specific tasks, of course. But right now, I'm actually um, talking with uh, people from HiveMind. It's a very cool new, like not really that new project, and they are working on democratizing access to deep learning models. The cool thing about them is that um, they are basically trying um, to make it possible to simulate cluster level GPU environments with volunteer hardware. So you can think of it as like if you ever heard about City at home, like all of these kinds of voluntary kind of projects. There's, there are actually many with machine learning as well. But from what I know, these people were the first ones to actually make it work. And they actually made it work faster than a, than a comparable CP, like comparable GPU cluster. So like they had like 40 volunteers. I think they trained a, they trained a language model on the Bengali language, if I'm not entirely incorrect. Um, and they made they, they compared it, and actually, like the actual runtime was even faster than uh, actual compute center or whatever. And they like used many many different techniques in terms of how to optimize for bandwidth um, dropouts and like of people who are dropping out basically in the, in the time of training. All of these kind of things. And when we talked uh, when we talked to these guys, uh, they said actually to me that they have a, have an issue with CV pro, uh, preprocessing as well because NLP is kind of easy because text is already that really it's really really condensed, so we can very easily transfer that. And then the problem becomes own, like in quotes, only model training. But for CV, you actually have a lot of data that you have to send away to those to these volunteers, and they kind of do it in a very smart way. And I'm kind of hoping that I can can make a dent in that, but we'll see. We'll see. Oh, fantastic! And good luck for yeah. that for that Thanks future research. And I think we will we'll end it there. 
Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. If yeah. you're interested in knowing more about Alex's work, uh, the links to his paper and the relevant libraries for, for Presto and whatnot will be, will be put in the show notes. And you can also connect with him on LinkedIn and he can be reached um, via email at alex.isenko at tum.de. Exactly, so, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. See you next time. See you.